Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 127 of the Rebel Author Podcast. I am so excited for today's episode because I really genuinely loved talking to today's guest, uh, which is the very fabulous Margot Wood. We have a diverse conversation about uh, how to write humour, how to write sex-positive stories, how to write for teens. Uh, yeah, we have a, a, a an eclectic discussion today, but it is it was amazing and yeah I really hope that you enjoy today's episode but first to last week's question which was do you have a mailing list author Kinsey Taylor said it's my website I don't have fully going but I do have one uh, now that MailChimp is changing I'm looking to move because WordPress is hella hard for a technically challenged person and I agree I think well I think WordPress is one of those uh bits of software that requires quite a uh, learning curve in terms of entry to using it. And then once you've got it, or I found this for me, like I can do certain things, but if anything breaks, then like, I'm royally fucked. Like I cannot do anything. And uh, yeah, but luckily I have an amazing friend with a huge brain. Um, and if you're listening, Chris, thank you as always, buddy, for being amazing and coming to my rescue like the superwoman you are. Um, yeah, I, 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 yeah. Basically, what I'm trying to say is that I appreciate how hard WordPress can be. Karen Heenan says, I've got a list, but it's a little bit sad, so I'm looking forward to learning how to make it better. And Shane said, uh, brilliant episode. So thank you guys for all your comments. I always love seeing your responses to the questions. The book recommendation this week is a patron book. So uh, thank you, LK Latham, for being a patron. And her book is called Midnight Victories from the Midnight Whispers uh, series. And the blurb says, neither Clara nor John are prepared for the fight to keep the asset and themselves alive. No one is who or what they seem. Enemies walk in plain sight and friends emerge from shadows. As the whispers of late of the late night DJ fill them with dread, Clara and John face the ultimate dilemma. Choose a side in the coming war between humans and vampires or make an unholy peace and keep the city safe. So, of course, this is uh, vampire fiction. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so go check it out. And thank you very much, LK Latham. Okay, so in personal update this week, oh, I still don't have the internet. <laughs> I honestly... <laughs> I don't even know where to go with how difficult life is without the internet. Like, I know this is a completely first world issue, but I run an online business. <laughs> Not having online capabilities is making my life rather difficult. Um, I spent over 11 hours on the phone to Vodafone last week because uh, Vodafone, uh, I believe, are managing the contract that City Fibre won, which is supposedly meant to be fucking government backed. OK, I'm going to try really hard not to get on a rant here. I literally spent five hours and 11 minutes on the phone on Friday. Um, and uh, it's now Thursday of the following week and I still don't have the internet and I haven't had it since Tuesday last week so I am it's no longer funny the novelty has worn off and frankly it is quite detrimental uh, I have managed to find a co-working space quite close by which is great obviously it's not free it's quite expensive um, 
but it is amazing and lovely and everybody there is really sweet and very smiley and very helpful and so that has been fantastic um but can't really do that every day um you know, of course, if you have a monthly office, uh, like a resident slot there, then it's considerably cheaper. Um, but of course, I, I'm not going to do that because I, I work at home. So I've been trying to like use hotspot and like the this uh, device, MiFi device thing that uh, Vodafone sent. And of course, we've then had gale force winds and storms, which has fucked loads of the masts. And I haven't even had phone signals some of the days. So I, I literally feel like it's, I don't know, like the, in the 80s or 90s again with like out tech and internet and, you know, my poor son, I, I have to laugh. Um, you know, I still remember growing up without the internet. Oh my God, how fucking old do I sound now? Listen, like, anyway, so I remember growing up without the internet and I remember the very first time that internet was installed in our house and it was dial up and you had all those bloody funny, ridiculous sounds and beeps and, and kind of like hissy static noises as it um, connected. And of course, back then, if you had, uh, if you were using the internet, you couldn't use the, the telephone. And my son was like, what's a tele, like a house phone? And I was like, oh my fucking God, how old am I? And um, anyway, and uh, this week I tried to explain to him that I lived without the internet for like the first decade of my life and he couldn't get his head around it. And then, um, bless him, I managed to get him attached to like this MiFi device thing, thinking that he was just going to like Google things or whatever it was he wanted to do. No, no, he wanted to play Roadblocks, which of course he couldn't do because the bandwidth that that requires <laughs> far outweighs that of a 4G or 3G, I think it was on those days because of the storms, a 3G sort of device. So uh, hysterics ensued. <laughs> And he was, like, devastated because <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. But, like, I lived without the internet. So I'm just like, kid, chill, we'll get the internet and it'll be amazing when we get it. But, of course, he doesn't know how to live without the internet because that's all he's ever known, bless his heart. So, oh, yeah, it's it's not been great. I had to... Um, I've been uploading, uh, up, I don't even know what I just said then, uploading various uh, books for pre-order and I had to do that in the co-working space. Um, what else have I been doing? I, yeah, I, so last week I was working on um, launch stuff or trying desperately to, but it wasn't very easy without the internet. And so I just stopped this week uh, because it was just stressing me out too much. So this week I have replotted the scent of death. Uh, so I'm ready to rock and roll and I will probably start. So here's the interesting thing about that. Originally, it was a straight male protagonist. Now it is a gay female or lesbian female uh, protagonist. And the change in mindset is so significant. I'm not sure if I can use any of the words that I've got. So I've got 23,000 words and I, I, I'm i sort of toying with completely scrapping it and starting again. Um, although some of those, maybe like 8,000 of those words, I think a skeleton, which would be fine because they're not written chapters anyway. Um, but yeah, so that was that was an interesting one to me, but in flipping into a mindset that's closer to my mindset uh, in terms of who I am, it, I was like, oh, <laughs> I don't know that any of this is right anymore. So yeah, that was, I don't know. I don't know how you guys form your characters and stuff and get into their heads, but that was that was uh, an interesting 
sort of revelation to me. I have also been working on uh, my next non-fiction book, uh, which I think I might reveal soon. Um, I'm just trying to think. Yeah, I, I'm not quite going to say it yet, but I am working on it. And um, I, there will be more updates on that soon. I think I'm about 8,000 words in. Um, so once I have settled on a title, I think I will then, yeah, yeah, I'm going to settle on the title and then I will reveal what I'm working on. So yeah, I haven't ever actually double stacked myself in terms of drafting, but I am trying to draft two books at the same time one is fiction and one is non-fiction um although I don't know how well that's gonna go because I do like to just binge one project but we'll see um and I'm also working in the background uh on trying to plan out my next course that I'm going to create as well uh I think that's probably it for me now there won't be huge amounts oh no I suppose there will because there's three <laughs> Shut up, Sasha. You've got three fucking book launches coming. Like, what are you even on about? There's going to be loads of updates. Um, yeah, okay, right. I'm going to shut up because uh, I'm just waffling on. And uh, so, mm, yes. Okay, right. Rebel of the Week. This week is Julie. Julie says... Um, the first time I heard your podcast, I thought, I'm no rebel. I'm an accountant. <laughs> hey, accountants can be rebels too. We are inclusive here. Uh, as I listened to more episodes, I realised I am quite the rebel. Excellent, excellent. The moment, uh, the momentous example of this was when a guy I loved and had been living with for two years asked me to marry him. My instant response was, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> as you, oh, sorry, I shouldn't laugh. <laughs> that poor guy. As you can imagine, his reaction was shock. <laughs> yes, so was mine. And so was mine. Oh, that's actually... <laughs> That's what she said as well as we say, Matt. Do you really not want to get married, he asked. I don't know, I said. I soul-searched deep and still did not know the answer. The next weekend, I stayed at my parents' home so I could have time away to think. At the end of the weekend, I still didn't know the answer. When I returned to my boyfriend, I said, I still don't know if I want to get married. I don't know when... I don't know then. It, it can't be right. I think we should split up. <gasps> Whilst he was shocked, it was the most harmonious split up you can imagine. Once he moved out, I started what I called my midlife crisis early at the grand old age of 27. During the two years after my boyfriend asked me to marry him, I sold my house, quit my job and gained permanent residence in Australia. I moved to Perth with one contact and a new job in a, a place I hadn't been to and started a new life. I have lived happily in Perth for the last 24 years. Wow! Wow, that gave me goosebumps. That is quite the rebellion. But look, it all turned out amazingly because you ended up in a place that made you happy. Um, yeah, living the life that you wanted to. Like, bloody hell. Wow, I think that is a wicked story. Thank you so much for sending that one in. Uh, if you would like to be a Rebel of the Week and you haven't sent me a story, or even if you have sent me a story and you'd like to send me another one, you devious little minxes, then you absolutely can and you absolutely should. Please do send in your stories. They can be any kind of rebellion, big, small, or something in between. You can email your Rebel story to Becca on... Uh, rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com. 
All right, thank you to Jess Nicole for becoming a new patron. I really appreciate it. And of course, I love all of my existing patrons as well. You guys are amazing. You make me feel like what I do is worthwhile. I love the interaction. I love the community. The Slack group keeps me on my toes. <laughs> the Rebel Masterclass, oh my God, oh my God. Right, so the next Rebel Masterclass, um, I can't remember what the slack tiers are, but it's the $15 level. The next uh, Rebel Masterclass is coming on the 2nd of March, which I believe is a Wednesday. So this is probably the day that this launches. So if you're listening in real time and you would like to learn how to write uh, romantic subplots, romance and enemies to lovers, kind of rivals to lovers, you don't want to miss this masterclass. We have watched a film and deconstructed, well, I have deconstructed two books um, on uh, both in and around this enemies to lovers, rivals to lovers trope. And I have to say, I think this is the best masterclass I'm ever, ever going to have taught. Um, so yes, I am super, super excited. And of course, uh, you, uh, you can get access. So even if you miss it, you can get access to the previous ones once you're at that level. Um, as we have had two other masterclasses, two or three, can't remember. Anyway, um, yes, very excited for this. Um, okay, so if you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes as well as bonus content, you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. Okay, this episode this week is sponsored by Pro Writing Aid. Rather than me tell you about Pro Writing Aid, I am going to let patron and author C.M. Newell and author coach now uh, all about Pro Writing Aid. And I will leave a link to her author services uh, and her website where you can find out about her young adult fantasy series in the show notes. Don't forget, uh, as being part of the Rebel community, you can get a discount uh, on Pro Writing Aid software as well. So I will also leave a link to the special promotions page uh, on Pro Writing aid for that if you are interested. Okay, enough from me, over to Cassie. I'm one of those lifetime licensed pro writing aid individuals. I love it so much. It's a part of my integrated editing for all of my manuscripts, for all of the books I have published and am working on now. The reason why I love it so much is I love Scrivener and I love the desktop plugin with regards to Scrivener. The reports are fantastic. It allows me to know where to focus on. And one of the key features that I really enjoy is setting it up with my genre in mind and comparing me to another author who writes in my genre. You don't get those kind of insights with a lot of editing tools. And this allows me to see how I'm faring against the market. I couldn't replace that. That is indispensable and I love it. So if anyone ever asks me what I use in terms of editing, in terms of my process, it's pro writing aid. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I am crazy fucking excited because I am joined by Margot Wood. Margot is the founder of Epic Reads and has worked in marketing for more than a decade at publishing houses, both big and small. She is a graduate of Emerson College and has once appeared as an extra in the Love, Simon movie. Born and raised in Cincinnati, Wood now lives in Portland, Oregon, and she is also the author of my favourite book in a very long time, Fresh, which I have also recommended on the show. Hello and welcome! 
I am obsessed with the way you just read that. I'm like, ooh, I want you to do the audiobook afresh, like the UK version. Oh man. Oh, yeah, I it's it's funny. As a teen, I did like some uh like voice work and stuff and Loads of people were like, oh, like, why don't you start a podcast? And I was like, oh, you know, I can't do the techie side. Anyway, long story short, I ended up doing it. And so now I do like narrate my nonfiction books as well. Like I'm not going to do, I'm not going to do my fiction. Well, I'm oh, no, oh, God. anyway, this is not the point. Fuck me. Let's talk about you. What are we even talking about me for? Tell everyone a little bit about you and how you got to where you are today. Hi, everyone. Um, God, my route to how I got to where I am is so convoluted. And I always get asked to do like talks with college students who are like hoping to break into publishing. And I'm like, I don't know that my story is all that like helpful (laughs) to people because it was kind of by accident. Um, So after college, I moved to New York City and uh, during the American giant recession. And so like all my plans for working in Hollywood and like, you know, doing stuff in pretty much all my plans were just gone because nobody was hiring. Everybody was getting fired um, and people were just forced to take jobs wherever they could find them. And I ended up getting a job off Craigslist. I don't know if you guys have Craigslist in the UK, but if you do, we know what it is. We yeah, don't, okay. We have something similar, but yeah. <laughs> so I got a job off Craigslist um, at this very tiny, tiny, I, I, calling it a tech startup makes it sound sexier than what it was. It was like five people um, and it was like all dudes. And I was hired to like do front end web design stuff. Cause I was like, could do all this like web design crap. Um, and so they hired me to do web design, but then they also um, hired me to like run some online communities. Cause like online communities were a thing back in the early 2010s. And um, so one of my clients among many, I had like Diptyque Paris, um, Nintendo. Um, I was running like for a while, the, um, the community for Dragon Ball Z, <laughs> which was really funny. <laughs> Um, and one of my clients was Random House. And so I was running their young adult book community at the time called Random Buzzers. And that is how I was introduced to publishing and this world, like the whole book world in general. Because before that, I wasn't really a reader. I grew up um, an athlete. Like I grew up playing sports and was also doing plays. I was a, I was a theater kid too. So I was like cross theater and sports person. Um <laughs> which was, I was very busy in high school. <laughs> so I never really was a reader because um, I'm also ADHD and dyslexic. So it's, I just didn't grow up enjoying reading. It was always a punishment in my household. If I ever got in trouble, which was frequently, you know, I'd be banned to my room to go read, which was like the worst punishment ever. Um, <laughs> and then when I started working on random buzzers, everybody was talking about this book and the forums were like lit up about this one book and, you know, to be a good community manager, you must immerse yourself in the community. And so the book ended up being uh, the hunger games and I read the hunger games and that like literally changed my life. I had finally discovered a, that I could enjoy reading and B just like this whole new world of young adult books. Like it was emerging at that time, you know, before the twilight, why it wasn't really a big thing. And then the sort of exploded after Twilight and the Hunger Games and 
And so I was right there in that mix right at that time. And I just devoured everything I could possibly read. And I begged, begged Random House to hire me like full time because I was still running all those other, you know, brands. I was at a (laughs) I was working at a tech startup with five other dudes and was hating my life. It was just the worst job. And I really wanted to work in publishing full time. And so I was like, Random House, please, please, please. I remember I took the um, this woman out to lunch and I was like, just laid my cards out on the table. And I was like, please hire me full time and I'll run your community in house. And she said, nope. <laughs> no. Yeah. So they turned me down. And then um, a couple of months later, um, Harper Collins reached out because they wanted to start their own rival community. And I interviewed for the job and they offered it me, offered me the job within five minutes after I left. And that <laughs> ended up- regretted that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Within a year, Random Buzzers, the Random House community um, went extinct. <laughs> and then Epic Reads, you know, kind of took over like the YA book marketing at the time. So if you were in the YA book community between 2012 and 2015, I was all over that space. (laughs) Um, And then, you know, oh, somebody said like, oh, I'm bastardizing some quote, but something like blah, 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 read a thousand quotes and like the words will flow out of you like a river or something like that. And it's true. Like, you know, as somebody who had never really read anything and then all of a sudden reading hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books in a very short amount of time, I definitely somewhere along the way got it in my head that maybe I could also (laughs) have, have my own book. Um, you know, I got cocky enough where I was like, maybe I too could do this. Well, what it really was, was that I worked on a lot of books that some of them were just, every book has an audience. (laughs) I have to be diplomatic about it. No, every book has an audience. (laughs) It's so true because I have read, like, I, I went and looked at some like because I wanted to go and give you five stars clearly and I was shocked that like and this is the same like I love the Schwab as well and like you see some of the people and it, like all of the things that they're saying that they don't like are like all the fucking things that I love and yes. that just goes to remind me yes. that like they're really you cannot please everybody and like nope. all of the stuff that people complain about like so I put a thing on um, Instagram the other day about footnotes because I fucking love a footnote like they're so like pretentious and funny and brilliant and like people hate them and I'm like the fuck I love them. give me all of the fucking footnotes just, get, get, just lay them on me like I'll have them all and like people get funny about it it's like never nice another one like anyway I I love them and it still surprises me that like the things that I love, some people hate. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll, I'll read all those books, you know, but anyway, yeah, it's, but that was, but that's the whole thing. Like having worked in that industry for a long time, you can see what is actually getting published and it's, there's so much different stuff getting published. And it kind of got into my head a little bit where I was like, I think a lot of people who don't end up finishing that book that they're always setting out to write is because they're too worried about writing the book that every single person is going to love, you know? And that's just not how it actually is at all. So it really takes the pressure off, you know, because then all of a sudden you're not trying to write for everyone. You're trying to write for your people, you know, and so yourself. Yeah. (laughs) I swear and like put loads of dick jokes and like sarcasm and rude things in my writing craft books. Cause I'm like, why should learning be boring? 
right? Exactly. But like some of my one star reviews is like, oh, well, this book would be really good if it weren't for the swearing. Fuck. Oh, yeah. I know. That's what my Nana said. That's what my Nana said about Fresh. She actually, to her credit, she did read it. She said she wasn't bothered by all of like the queer stuff. She was, however, bothered by how many fucks are in the book. And I was like, oh, my bad. Yeah. Yeah. Not going to change that. Um, The other thing that I was going to say is uh, I I feel like we must be a a similar age because a lot of the things that you're saying are like things that have like the same era. But I, the reason I started writing, well, no. There were many reasons, but the thing that pushed me over the edge was my fury at the end of the Divergent series. And like, I literally (laughs) launched the book and my books are precious. I I don't even crack the fucking spines, but like I, um, yeah, I launched the book across the room and that was when I picked up the pen. I worked on that book big time. I was very, very, very heavily involved with the promotion of that book. Yeah, I did a lot of events with Veronica and I remember where I was when I got the like watermarked PDF of Allegiant and I got to the end and I was like, oh no. (laughs) I was like, oh no. I was like, we're going to have such a problem. Yeah. Like I was pissed. I was like, I don't think I have ever felt fury, uh, but I have since discovered, I don't know if you've heard of Gail Carragher, but she writes the, um, oh, hang on. Uh, it's the, that, um, the, the steampunk series, right? Yes. The one with the umbrella. Yes. On the cover. Solace yeah. is the, is one of the ones yeah. that she's written. Um, but she has also written an indie published a, um, book called the heroine's journey. Mm. And the reason we all felt cheated is because Tris, uh, was following a heroine's journey and had a hero's journey ending. And that's why we all felt cheated. But anyway, just random tangent for you. But yeah, I was I was furious and I fucking, like I literally devoured the whole series and then I just, <laughs> anyway, here I am like 10 years later. So, you know, um, okay. So before we dive into questions, um, do you, would you like to tell everyone a little bit about your amazing book? Sure. Um, It is a queer retelling of Emma set at Emerson College. That is the quick elevator pitch for you. Um, What it really is, is it's about that first year you leave from home and just like how fucking nuts people go that first year away from home. Like uh, you're meeting new people and you're trying to figure out who you are. You kind of know who you were like in high school and like either you want to drastically change from that or you want to like you know, go into that even further and you're away from your parents. So you kind of like can be way more naughty if you want to be. And I don't, it just, I just really wanted to capture that specific moment in a person in a young person's life, because by the time you have your second year away from home, like eh, you've already done it all, you know, you're seasoned by that point, but it's that first year away from home that is the most unique because everybody else around you is also experiencing that for the first time as well. So it's not just you, it's everybody else around you as well, which is why it creates so much chaos, I think. Um, And I just really wanted to write something that was fun and fizzy and like light and does not take itself too seriously. And just something that like is a palate cleanser for people, you know, like something you can read quickly and have a really good time with. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I genuinely 
laughed so hard I cried <laughs> so like if that is not a you know sweeping recommendation I don't know what is but uh it yeah it is so funny um so yeah I, I just brilliant 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 okay um right I, I am gonna ask you about epic reads because I have yeah. to really go ahead Let's so do it. can you talk about your experience um of kind of fa- founding it and building it like what was your greatest lesson that you have taken away from that to put into your own career? Oh, yeah. A lot of lessons learned with that. Um, I am extremely proud of the work that I've done with Epic Reads. Like, I don't work there anymore. You know, full disclosure, I haven't worked there since 2017. Um, and when I went, like, first day I got there, what they had built was they had a name and then they had, like, the bare bones of a website. But they didn't have any kind of plan of what to do with it. They didn't know what it was going to be other than they wanted it to be a community and a way to market their books that didn't have a large marketing budget. That was the original purpose of Epic Reads was to be a platform so that um, we could promote authors and their works without having to put the emphasis on the author themselves. Because at the time, social media was still relatively new, like Instagram didn't even exist at this point. Um, at the time we really wanted to take that burden off the creators and have like one place where people could go to find all of the authors that they want to follow and all that stuff. So, um, beyond that though, they didn't really have a sense of identity. They didn't have a sense of like what it was going to become. And in fact, uh, my last year, right before I left my, um, my boss had told me that they had never planned for it to succeed. They thought it was just going to be a like a thing that they put a, uh, some money into. They get a little bit of goodwill press. They get to go to Publishers Weekly and be like, look at this cool thing we're doing. And then it just quietly dies because a lot of publishing initiatives, honestly, they kind of go that way. They like somebody will start something and then it just sort of quietly fizzles out because most publishers just don't put the resources towards those things. So I will give credit to Harper. Um, when I got there, I had a lot of resources in terms of, um, I mean, like, you know, they were sending me on, like sending me out to events and things with authors. They were putting me in front of the authors. Like I was getting to meet these people and build these relationships so I could get and like create content. Um, and pretty much anything I asked to do, they were, they were like up for. Um, so it was a lot of fun. The only problem was, is that I was the only person working on it full time. Um, other people in various other departments would occasionally touch it here and there, but I was designing all the graphics, writing all the content, managing the back end of the social media, like the content management system platform. I was also sometimes coding the platform and designing the front end of it, uh, running all the social media. So Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, and then two years after that, like after it launched, then they wanted us to launch a YouTube channel. And that became a whole other thing. <laughs> um, and it was a lot of fun, but it was a lot of work. And I put like, I'm ADHD. So I ended up hyper-focusing on it big time. And I hyper-focused on it for like five good years <laughs> uh, before I became completely burnt out. Um, and I think that was probably the hardest lesson I had to learn was I just didn't, nobody was talking about burnout, you know, burnout's a relatively new term that people are talking about, but nobody talked about it in 2015, 2016, 2017. Like there was no discussion about that. And especially in publishing, um, it was just sort of like grit your teeth and keep going. Um, and because I was the only person working on it, 
full time, like all of that pressure was on me to meet their Harper's expectations, continuously surpass their goals that they were setting for me. Like I, even though I was running the whole thing and had full control over it, I wasn't the person setting the goals for it. Um, that was somebody else who was not involved. Cause that's just how corporate structure works, you know? Um, and it was, it became too much, too much because I was also the face of it. I wasn't doing all the videos. All those videos are still on YouTube. Um, and I had an absolute blast, but it was also just a lot of pressure, especially as their goals for the site continued to change, um, from what originally was. And, um, I'm a community first person. I'm a like reader first person. Like I try to put the community and think of them always first. Um, even sometimes in some cases, even before the authors, um, because I think fostering a healthy community is probably the most valuable thing a brand can do. Um, and staying true to that community is the most important thing a brand should be doing in order to like stay alive. (laughs) And what happens is sometimes brands, they, they become very big. And then all of a sudden they have all the success and then people come in, the suits come in and they're like, okay, well now we want to change it. Now we want to take this success and like make it even bigger, but the ways that they want to make it bigger almost always are at the detriment of, to the community. And so by the end of my tenure there, it was a lot of daily fighting with the higher ups to maintain the integrity of the site. Um, and at some point, if you're the only person fighting a much larger army, it's you, you just can't do it anymore. So I burnt out and, <laughs> and I ended up leaving and, um, some other things happened in my personal life. Like my father died and who I was very close with, as you've read the book, that relationship with Elliot and her father was exactly what my relationship was like with my dad. So that was really hard to have sort of all of these things kind of happening at once, Um, and I just decided for my own mental health that I needed to step away. Um, and that was probably the hardest decision in a career, like the hardest decision I've ever had to make in a career. I miss it every single day. I'm very proud of what I did and what Epigreens has done since I've left. Um, even though I've had no hand in any of that, but, um, leaving was the right choice for me mentally. Um, I, it just wasn't sustainable for me anymore. And then right after I left was basically all of a sudden I had all this pressure was taken off of me and all of my creative energy that I was using in my day job was gone. And suddenly I started writing (laughs) and that's when I started writing fresh. Um, because I was, I had no creative outlet anymore. So it ended up becoming a book. (laughs) Well, thank God you left because honestly, I'm like, I couldn't imagine my life without that book now. So (laughs) I could not have written that book if I was still, at Harper and at Epic Reads. There's absolutely no way, no way in hell I could have ever written that book or at least finished it. I probably would have written like little bits and pieces here and there, which is what I, you know, I'd originally had the idea while I was there, but then I never got around to writing it because I was just too exhausted (laughs) from doing everything else. Okay. So I don't normally do this, but I'm going to start with a patron question because this is like a a sort of a grounding basis question, I think. So Matt Goodall asks, what does sex positive mean? Is there like a definitive line where it's sex positive before it becomes smut? Or is it a matter of understanding the genre and having like a feel for where it lies in the story? 
That's such a good question. And I think the the answer to the what is sex positive is probably much more nuanced than I could ever answer because I think sex positive depends on your definition of sex because <laughs> everybody's definition change, you know, is different. Um, uh, but for me and for how I drew the line between like being explicit without being necessarily like racy or being sex positive without being smutty is that, um, in fresh there, she talks about sex a lot. There's an entire chapter where she's just, it's just a montage of her hooking up with different people and trying to figure out what she likes. Definitely one of my favorite (laughs) scenes. Like there is, I don't want to spoil it, but there's a slip and it was literally, I was like, ah, ah, ah. We've all been there. We've all been there. (laughs) Just, you know, when you, you mean to go right and they go left and (laughs) things, things miss. Uh, (laughs) Square peg and round hole. Uh, wrong hole, wrong hole. Yeah, <laughs> wrong hole, wrong hole. Um, yeah, so for me, um, there's a thing that I do in Fresh where all the um, explicit sex scenes that aren't romantic are comedic. So there is a lot of sex in it, but it's almost always done in the service of comedy and being, it is explicit. Like, you know, there is, it's not like overly explicit, but it is not just fade to black either. You know, that we're talking about missing holes and things like that. So it is explicit, but there is nothing romantic about those scenes. And then of course the room, if there's a romantic scene, then that all, I tend to fade to black. And that's because it is technically a YA book. If this had been an adult book, we would have gotten that sex scene between Elliot and blank. Um, I won't spoil it, but we would have gotten that sex scene. Um, but in YA, like, I think you can talk about sex in a frank way. You can, you, I think sex should be depicted on the page in YA novels, but there is a line. There should be a line because it is younger readers who are reading those books. Um, which is why I always tried to like the majority of the sex scenes in fresh are not (laughs) sexy. (laughs) They're just raunchy and funny. Um, (laughs) and you know, the more, the romance is less is, um, you know, that's not shown on the page because I wanted to, I wanted there to be a line and for Elliot, there needed to be a line, you know, this whole book, she shares literally everything with the reader, except for that, you know, you get to that point and then she's like, nah, some things are for me and my blank friend. (laughs) Um, so (laughs) Um, so that was like, it was important for me to, for Elliot to have a line and for Elliot to have boundaries, but to portray it in the book. Um, and just to be open and honest about sex, because I also, I find that a lot of sex, but like, you know, romantic or sexy books in YA, all the sexy, like all these people are supposed to be like, so, you know, they're virgins or they're inexperienced or whatever. And we're all having like the best time of their lives, like their first hookup. And I'm just like, I'm sorry, but did no one go through the awkward missing of holes years that I did? Because I did not have good sex when I was in high school or in college. Like, I'm sorry, but like, nobody knows what they're doing. Yep. And that's sort of the point, you know, like, it's funny. Like, it's, Oh, sex is funny, especially at that age when you don't know what you're doing. And I think it's okay to acknowledge that. And and I think it's good to embrace that, you know, and just be honest about it. (laughs) 
so completely I think it's really difficult because for me like as a teenager I definitely would have loved books because I read prolifically as a teen um and there there were when I was a teen there were no LGBT like YA books and yeah. um, and I do think that there I feel like like the genre is changing because there are more sex scenes in young adult but they're definitely more like about the emotion and the feelings rather than like the physical action but even yes. still there is very little of that there's even less of that for gay teens so like I still yeah I still feel like that is something that I want to see done tactfully and respectfully but like inclusively because if straight teens can fuck then why can't gay teens fuck you know like exactly exactly and when I was writing fresh I was hyper aware that the emotions the romantic feelings and emotions around sex were covered in so many books, like all those ones behind me. <laughs> and I realized I was like, okay, Fresh is not going to be that. And I know mm. we were talking earlier about books not being all things to all people, yes. but I made a very conscious choice about like, I was like, this is one girl's journey. Like it is about like- But it is the journey. Things. It yeah, is, it but is it's the also journey. about the physicality of having sex, you know? And so I wanted- like I probably even thinking about it, I'm like, oh, I should have gone even further. But I was like, no, it, like this is still nothing about new that territory. Changing. <laughs> <laughs> it's still new territory, to be honest. Somebody I saw a review that somebody tagged me in on Instagram the um, last week and they said it that it was um, they felt that it was ahead of its time. And I was like, that actually feels very accurate for Fresh because it does like some of the complaints of, you know, that people have about Fresh, which I always like to know. I'm a professional marketer. I like to know everything about all that stuff um, from an objective point of view. You should use some of the one stars because I was like, oh, oh, I'm all over this book. Like, yeah, like, they're, they're funny. People, they're funny. funny. Yeah. Like, you don't like this is all the things that I want in a book. Yes. Like, oh, yes. I'm, I'm all by it. Like. Exactly. The reasons why some people hate it are the reasons why I love it. Yes, <laughs> and the reasons too. why I wrote it. Yes. <laughs> oh, I love when authors go on, like use do Facebook advertising and they're like <laughs> using the one star reviews. I'm like, oh my God, I found so, your feet. <laughs> I had tried to get my publisher when we were doing like the promotional marketing, we had like some mailers and things like that. I desperately tried to get them to put fake blurbs on my book that were just like the worst piece of trash I've ever read like blurb from Margot's mom you know like (laughs) like I wanted to embrace that but they were um not so keen on going that angle which I I understand you know they they didn't want to give people ammo Um, I personally would have, I personally would have gone a completely different route and just would have absolutely leaned into that. Um, it's like those gossip girl ads. If you've ever seen those gossip girl ads from like 2009 or whatever, they took all the like terrible trade industry reviews and like use them in their like posters and all of that marketing. And I was like, that is so brilliant. And I love it. (laughs) I also fucking love gossip girl. So have you seen the new gossip girl? No, I haven't. I haven't. I love it. It's like complete trash TV. And I'm just like, not even slightly (laughs) guilty. Don't feel ashamed. No shame here. (laughs) Um, Okay. Right. Next question. (sighs) Like because of 
historical like misogyny and the patriarchy and all of this stuff traditionally it's been way easier to depict male characters as like players Mm -hmm. um while still they have like this universal appeal because it's just acceptable like one of my favorite characters who is female who does this is shane from the l word Mm. um and she is just amazing and is a complete player. And like, I still loved her anyway for it. But I think it's really hard to do that. Or it's harder to do that with women because it's less acceptable. But you kind of did that with Elliot. So mm-hmm. like what tactics or like literary tricks or tools or personality, personality element, ele- ugh, that is easy for me to say, personality elements, did you add to Elliot in order to make her both like sex positive little bit of a cheeky player like exploring oh she's such a player (laughs) yeah whilst but also being appealing because I totally like you know empathize and related to her and like you know yeah reminisced about my first year of uni (laughs) two things one I think the Emma by Jane Austen is like kind of like the original um, female character who's cocky and confident um thinks she knows everything about the world but is like kind of an asshole (laughs) but you still root for her like uh, apparently emma's way more divisive than i thought i thought i assumed everybody just loved emma but apparently not um apparently people find her really annoying whereas i find her quite endearing um because she is so cocky and still so lovable um and you're right it is a completely it's such a hard line to walk because of the double standards. Um, so that was one thing. So taking sort of analyzing Emma and trying to figure out why do we love Emma, even though she's such an ass. Um, and then the other aspect of it was actually goes back to a class I took while I was attending Emerson college. I took a comedy, like a sort of history of comedy or the politics of comedy. That's, I think that's what it was called politics of comedy. And the major theme that we looked at in that class was male comedians and female comedians and why there was this whole thing about female comedians, you know, back in the day could only were only successful if they were ugly and um, not raunchy. And then, and we were trying to figure out like why that was like, why do people find women who are sexual and raunchy, why do we like immediately dismiss them or are wary or why do they make us nervous when men can go and do the exact same thing um, and have, there's no problems at all. And so what I, from that class, I remember what we basically walked away was with the women who were able to break those barriers. Like Sarah Silverman is one of them. Um, Joan Rivers is another, Um, especially with Sarah Silverman is that and this is what I used in fresh <clears throat> is Elliot is hyper aware of her own issues. <laughs> she makes fun of herself before anybody else can make fun of her. And so when a woman makes fun of herself and it instantly disarms those around them, um, especially like a reader, you know, reading. So like if you're reading about a character who's an asshole, but they know that they're an asshole and they admit to being an asshole and they fess up to it. It's like, okay, I now no longer have to be angry at them for being an asshole because they at least acknowledge it. So now there's something else going on here um, (laughs) under beyond them just being an asshole. 
Yeah, um, I think that's so interesting. There's there's something about characters. Like I can't remember where I learned this, but um, and a character can be like unlikable, um, and your readers can still relate to them if they have the potential to change. They don't have to change, but they need the potential. And I think what you're talking about is like how you portrayed that in that in her self-awareness she has the capacity to change you know we're not going to tell anybody if she does or not but you know she has the capacity to change because she's self-aware so yeah ah i i i um yeah that is a really good point and also i think it was really important to me and when i was analyzing a lot of the sort of lovable asshole characters because that's my favorite favorite narrator in in like fiction is the like the lovable asshole or the lovable screw up and they all kind of have like a couple of things or maybe one thing where they're like they will never compromise on that and they will always like it's a good thing so like with Elliot um she's super super protective of her friends like hyper protective of her friends and will always stand up for her roommates and things like that like she'll always do what's or at least try to do what's best or right for the people who are in her life. Um, and so I think there's a lot you people are willing to forgive if your characters have um, some sort of like equal or opposite positive attributes, you know? So you kind of have to have that balance because if, you're par- if your character is just an asshole and like that's it, then there's nothing likable about them. <laughs> They're Absolutely. just an ass. <laughs> So um, just randomly chuck out some of your favorites. You mentioned that you love those types of characters. What are some of the your favorite books that you've read that are like that? Yeah, so two come to mind that were kind of influential. Actually, three. Three come to mind that were influential um, for me when I was um, setting out to write fresh. And you'll notice that all three of these are male characters written by men. <laughs> because it's very hard to find... Um, a true, a true comedic female character. You know, there's a lot of like rom-coms, but they're not, they're mostly just romance with like a f- one line of dialogue that might be funny. I was really trying to go for a true comedy. Um, but Christopher Moore's book, uh, Lamb, the Gospel According to Biff, Christ's Childhood Pal, that to me is the epitome of the lovable asshole screw up narrator and it's basically jesus christ the lost years um told from his best friend's point of view and biff is his best friend and biff is just like your everyday modern character who's narrating (laughs) jesus and it is the funniest funniest book i have ever read and i to this day will reread it every single year like you don't have to be a religious person i'm not a religious person i'm an atheist but like i can appreciate (laughs) a really funny take on um, Jesus, (laughs) the character of Jesus. And so um, that book for sure. Um, Another book is um, All Are Wrong Today's. I'm making sure. Yeah. I always want to say All Are Wrong Yesterday's. No, All Are Wrong Today's by Ilan Mastai. That is about a guy who is like mid 20 somethings, and he screws up the t- this time travel machine and accidentally sets his like the earth and world as we know it now on the wrong timeline. And so we're all screwed up. And now he's trying to like backtrack and fix it, but keeps screwing it up every single time he goes back. So that's one of my 
all-time favorites. He's that's also a very endearing book. Like that book is so good. Um, and then the third book, which is also includes footnotes, which is where the footnote inspiration came in is Beat the Reaper by Josh Bazel. By the way, all of these are adult novels, not YA. So if you're a younger person, um, you know, take, take care when stepping into these. Um, but what's it uh, called? Beat, beat the, beat the reaper. Um, I, I, I really hope there are no young adults listening to this because <laughs> this is definitely labeled explicit. <laughs> so beat the reaper by Josh Bazel. It's about a former hitman for the mob. He was like a teenager who was brought up in the mob and taught how to kill. And he now has gone on, gone into witness protection. He's left the mob. He's gone into witness protection and witness protection, put him through medical school. So now He's a doctor who knows how to kill people, but make it look like oh it's a god. medical condition. <laughs> oh my god, that's a, oh my god! I the well, my bank's gonna thank you later on tonight. <laughs> yeah, those those three books are funny with like sarcastic narrators who are just trying to do the right thing, but screwing up everything along the way and. You know, they're all cocky and they're just, they're wonderful. I love, those are, those are some good ones. (laughs) Well, I I am definitely going to be, and it's funny, I I think somebody else has recommended All Our Wrong Todays to me. So yeah, Uh, I'm- That's an amazing sort of light sci-fi standalone. Oh, it's so good. So good. Well, you'll, you'll be sucked in within the first two pages. (laughs) I cannot wait. Okay. Turn to a more serious topic or more serious question. Mm-hmm. You very sensitively cover sexual assault in the book um, and sort of trigger warning to anybody, skip forward a few minutes. Um, I think you really powerfully show like the positive, positive, joyful kind of comedic side of, of what sex can be and like the, that sex positivity. Um, but you also show the darker side um, and the ways that people can react badly to like people who are sex positive. And there is slut shaming and there is like a scene where there is um, an assault. So I wonder if you could talk about how you managed that balance and how you trod the line between sexual assault and sex positivity and what advice would you give to others who would like to explore or or try to you know portray those aspects in a book yeah so that was I'm glad you enjoyed that like that it felt that it worked within the story of fresh because that was something I really just agonized over when I was writing it because a I I had to include the assault scene for a variety of reasons, Um, not just because of not because Elliot was promiscuous. I had absolutely no bearing on whether or not I was going to include the assault that like to me was not a factor. But I had to include the assault because a that is also a plot point in um, in Emma that a lot of people forget is that. what's his face, the jackass, he tries to kiss Emma. And, you know, she's like, wait, what? I like did not give you any reason to come on to me. But so it does happen in, in Emma, very light, you know, um, it's a much lighter experience that Emma goes through than Elliot. Um, and the other reason I felt it was really important to include that scene um, is because that happened to me in college, um, almost exactly as how it happens in the book. And, I think I was 
you know, I wanted to like kind of process my own experience. And I think writing that sort of stuff is extremely cathartic for you. Um, but also we're coming out after the meet, like we are in a post me too era and sexual assaults on college and university campuses are rampant. It is, it is an endemic. It is horrible. And it happens so often and so frequently and almost nothing is ever really done about it, especially in America. They make reporting on it really terrible um, for the person who is reporting it. And it can really put your entire life under scrutiny if you choose to report an assault on a college campus. Um, and it basically will end up kind of defining you and it will follow you for years because your name is a public record. You can't, you know, report anything anonymously. Um, and, you know, the rules kind of change depending on who's in office. But at the time that I was writing Fresh, it was Donald Trump who was in office. And he basically made the Title IX reporting like they they made it so much worse, so much harder for assault survivors to, you know, report on their assault. And that was sort of weighing heavily on me at the time. And. I knew that I, I had to talk about it because this book is a frank look at what college experience is like. This is not a book that's like, it's all sunshine and roses. Like college is fun, but it also is scary. And, and if I didn't include it, then I was, I felt like I would be doing a disservice to the readers of not warning them of like, what could, what's out there? What is at these parties? Like what happens if you get way too shit faced and no one's looking out for you and you're not looking out mm -hmm. for yourself? Like mm -hmm. you need to take care of yourself, you know, just as much as having fun. Um, and when Elliot, so this, you know, this is sort of a spoiler, but I think it's important to talk about. It's not really that big of a spoiler, but Elliot is, um, there's an assault, um, or at least an attempted assault. And, um, she, does not, she chooses not to report it. And the explanation for that is in the form of a footnote. And I, it's probably the only footnote of all the footnotes that's actually important to read. <laughs> all the others are just like, hey, if you want to know backstory or hey, here's another joke. Um, <laughs> that is the one footnote that's actually important to read because the explanation for why she's choosing not to report it is only in that footnote. She never, ever brings it up ever again. It only appears in that footnote. And I wanted it to be that way because I wanted it to symbolically show that she was choosing to make this horrible moment in her life a literal footnote of her life. It's not important enough to be in the main body because she wanted to move on and put it behind her and not make it her entire like existence. And I think it's when we're in this, you know, post me too era, I think the conversations about reporting assault and, you know, um, justice and things like that. I think it's also really important to have a conversation about is reporting the right for you because sometimes it's not right for people and that's okay too. Um, it's really up to the survivor to decide what's best for them. And if rehashing the assault over and over and over and over again for years is right for them, then that's great. But for some people that is extremely damaging and can lead to things like PTSD and stuff like that. So for Elliot, the choice for her, um, is to not report. And that's sort of, like, and I w really didn't want this, you know, 
the assault to derail the story. This is a comedy. This book is a comedy. There's like a handful of low moments throughout the book, but like, and that's certainly the lowest, but ultimately this book is a comedy. And if she had decided to report, it would have changed the entire second half of the book. It would have been about that. You know, it wouldn't have been about Elliot growing and changing and figuring out what works for her in the bedroom and, you know, all that stuff. It would have been about reporting the assault. (laughs) And that's not the story that I wanted to tell. And there are other books that handle that topic and go into assault and what happens after and, you know, all of that stuff much better than I ever could have written. Um, So that fresh is not that is not that book, but it, it was important for me to include, include it in the story. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that because like, yeah, that is obviously something that has is very personal to you so I'm very grateful Mm -hmm. that you like shared that and yeah I think unfortunately there is a lot of that in the UK as well um and yeah I mean the number of women I know it's it's everybody everybody knows somebody you know like (laughs) and um as far as the slut shaming goes I remember having really interesting conversations with my editor about how she perceived Elliot and I hadn't really thought about it until she brought it up that she was like Look, Elliot's at this point where she thinks that she's in this liberal utopia of this progressive utopia because she goes to a super queer college. Like Emerson is a super queer, like progressive utopia. But she, you know, that doesn't mean that people aren't also going to perceive her choices as different from their own and judge her for it, you know? Um, And I think it was important to show that to have that sort of like mini slut shaming moment at the auction, um, <laughs> that funny dating auction, uh, because I sort of wanted to knock Elliot back on her feet because she's been going through being like people who don't accept me for who I am, like blah, blah, you know, are terrible human beings and everybody accepts me and all this stuff. <laughs> and then, and then she's like, Oh wait, right. Um, some people do find this, my choices bothers like some, this isn't going to be cool with everybody. And it was, it was a good to, sort of remind her of that fact. So it's not all sunshine and roses for Elliot. She's not, it's, you know, there is no, she's not being slut shamed because she's queer. She's being slut shamed because she slept with a whole bunch of people and never called them back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, I love her so much. There's a big I distinction. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm starting to realize why I like her so much. <laughs> and we're going to be right on from that. So um, your side characters were full, vibrant and like had their own voices and oh, I just loved them. So like what advice would you give to writers trying to create side characters that are full and vibrant and sexy and memorable whilst not taking over the story from the protagonist? Oh, the number of times Micah almost took over the whole story. (laughs) I had to really scale him back. Um, So for me, writing characters that are side characters, so they only have a handful of scenes and you want to make sure that the second they enter the page that they feel like real and you can visually see them or, you know, the readers can visually see them in their mind um, is to, it's all about the details. It's like the specific details. So I mapped out like an arc for Elliot I was like, where does she begin and where does she end? How does she get from point A to point B? And that's how I planned out Elliot's arc. And I did the exact same thing for every single one of the side characters too. It's probably the only planning I ever did for this book. (laughs) And I did it after I wrote like four drafts. Um, (laughs) I had to go back in and 
fix things around. Um, so, um, this is sort of another thing that comes from like my theater days, but it's like opposites. Like I couldn't have a character like Elliot's roommate. Um, originally I wanted her to be just like Elliot, you know? And then I realized I was like, wait, no, they can't be just the same because like, that's too much of the same and it's not really believable and you kind of get them mixed up. So instead it's opposites. It's a study in opposites, um, like color theory almost. And so if Elliot's going to have, parents like just one parent drops her off she isn't you know doesn't have a big family she rarely talks to her family it's not like not a big deal um then you've got a character like lucy who has like a million family members who are all up in her business all the time she's constantly involved with what they've got going on she's going home is super super important to her um and so like Elliot likes going out and getting shit based and Lucy's likes having, you know, tea parties in the, in their dorm. So I think putting people sort of like opposing mentalities together and like, you know, Lucy's double majoring and Elliot hasn't picked a major. Um, it, that's a really easy way to sort of help you automatically define your side characters is like, take your main character who you want to shine throughout the story and then just start picking things that are opposite of those characters. And then the other piece of advice is steal details from your friends and family <laughs> from people, you know? Um, so like the fact that Lucy is Armenian, my college best friend is Armenian and like was from Watertown and like went home and did all of that stuff. Um, and what she was wearing was based on what my roommate was wearing. And Micah is based on um, like some of the details, like they aren't based on these people, like just the details are pulled from some of these people. So like what Micah dresses like and how he talks was inspired by this guy that I used to work with, um, after Harper, um, at this place called food 52. So it's like, I just sort of kind of borrowed these little details. Um, the only characters that are truly, I will admit freely, truly just a carbon copy of the people in my own life are the sisters and the dad <laughs> and the brief scene with the mom. She's not really in it. <laughs> um, but the sisters and the dad, are just my sisters and my dad. <laughs> so. Aww, I love that. I love the little sister. I won't lie. She was so, so cute. <laughs> yeah. She used to be really cute back then. And then my little, <laughs> my little sister grew up and now she's an ass. <laughs> just kidding. So fancy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have so many half siblings and step siblings, no full siblings, but like literally I could fill a minibus with my siblings yeah like um, my little sister with the dryer sheets people love that little moment when ellie gets it's like in the first chapter she unpacks her trash bag full of clothes that she brought with her to school which is how i brought my clothes to school um <laughs> and she finds a thing of dryer sheets with a cute little note from her little sister that happened to me like that was what my little sister was obsessed with the dryer sheets no way quirks everybody has little quirks you just have to be observant you know and start writing that shit down <laughs> oh my god I love it I love it do you know I was like this is so random this can't possibly be like taken from real life so now that I know that that was taken from real life I think that's my favorite thing in the whole book other yeah. than the Cheeto promise thing like the, that also was also happened um no. my very first day um, oh my god my dad did not drop me off at emerson actually it was my older sister because she was going to tufts at the time which is across town in boston and so we had driven from cincinnati together and my sister literally dumped me on the curb with my trash bags and peeled out and was like see ya and that's how i got to college um <laughs> 
So my first day, I like drag my bags up the stairs to the third floor and I'm the only one in the room. And then all of a sudden I get this knock on this door and this girl is standing in my doorway eating a box of Cheez-Its and she like hands me the box and she says, Cheez-Its in exchange for friendship. And I was like, what the fuck? are you? I was like, but that's such a good line. And it stuck with me all these years later, because like, what an entrance, what an entrance. Seriously. Like the carnage of freshers year at uni was like, oh, it was just, this is, I think that's why I loved the book. Cause I was like, it, my uni year, like that first year was, was literally that random. Like yes, it, it was it like is. everybody shat the bed and just yes. like fucking went wild that we were feral. We were feral yes. in our first year. Like I, I am not proud of this, but I, and I still don't know if I was spiked, but like I drank a lot and um I was very sick and like my ex at the time, like bundled me in a car on my own in a taxi cab. And then like the next thing I remember is waking up in the morning, but fucking naked on my bedroom floor. But what had happened is my, my housemate at the time worked in one of the bars and he came home at four o'clock in the morning. Our front door was open. My clothes were littered up the stairs. Like the bathroom was a mess and I was not in the house. I still don't know where I was during those four oh, hours. Oh my God. Like, I, I literally lost four hours of my life. And I have never, ever to this day worked out what happened. But like, I went and got all kinds of tests because I was like, what happened to me? Yeah. See, like, those things happen all the time in college and they're like very serious and they should be taken seriously. <laughs> but like, now, so many years later, it's like, but that was also really fucking funny. Yeah. <laughs> right could have died oh well but I didn't you know (laughs) oh anyway right um you created like this crew click like friendship found family kind of feeling um with the students in the dorm so fast um I thought it was amazing loved it I was like I want to be their friends um so what advice would you give to writers wanting to create that kind of crew group dynamic like friendship bond know that this advice is actually helpful but this is just what ended up happening <laughs> is i probably wrote like the vast majority of fresh actually most of the chapters are stuff that i'd written just in one draft and then that's how to end it up i very lightly edited throughout but like i tend to be a like i bang it out right the first time person but the problem is is that i bang it out like so many extra things that I don't end up needing. Um, and so with Elliot and her friends, cause that was also really important. I was like, I need them to be like, love it for spite, love it for sight, but for friendship. So friendship at first sight. Cause I, I really wanted, I love friendship at first sight stories. Um, and for, I ended up writing like so many different possibilities of them all meeting for the first time. And that's probably the only thing that I ended up writing like way too many extra scenes for was like just, you know, her group dynamic. Um, and so like at one point, um, uh, Elliot was going to meet Lucy for the first time in the bathroom when an Elliot needs a tampon. And like, it was going to be a whole like tampon funny scene. And then Micah was going to be like something else. Like I had so many different things written. So what ended up happening was, 
by the time I got through all of those, you know, those extra reimaginings of these scenes, I knew them so much better. <laughs> I understood their dynamics so much better by like writing all of the shit that didn't end up going in the book. It was sort of like doing all that legwork, you know, all the backstory in my head, because like by the time I did end up writing their meet cutes <laughs> um, for each character, I had already like known what their dynamic was going to be the whole time. So the those scenes that ended up in the book yeah, those were like the first times that I'd written those scenes, but it wasn't really because it felt like I already knew what it was going to be. I wasn't like agonizing over how their relationship was going to be. I had already played it out in so many different ways. Like I tried different personalities for all of them until, until I figured out like what worked at least for my writing style. Um, so there was a lot, like a lot of left on the cutting room floor scenes between Elliot and Lucy and Micah and Brad and Rose, like all of them. Um, so I guess my advice would just sort of be before you start really like, if it's not working for you, like, don't worry about that. Like then change something else about their personalities, like get those dynamics first before you really start laying out the rest of your story. Um, because I think it'll help you once, if you know that dynamic, what works, before you really start, you know, doing like some serious drafting, then I think you'll be in a better place for it. <laughs> I have never heard anybody talk about a meet cute for friends. And I just think <laughs> that encaptures what you did so, so well. Um, that's mind blowing. And I'm gonna have to write that down because that completely changes how I view like those initial interactions. Um, yeah. And I just think that's fucking brilliant. So thank you for that. That is, I am literally going to implement that in my next book and change how yeah. all of the characters come into the scene because I think that's brilliant I yeah. mean fresh is a romance but the most important relationship is her and Lucy her and her roommate yeah yeah <laughs> that's the true relationship in this book <laughs> okay one of my favorite things about your book was the voice mm -hmm. um you employed so many tricks, like breaking the fourth wall, you did footnotes and stuff. So can you talk about how you came to that voice? Like, what advice would you give to listeners who are trying to create their own, this sounds terrible, but like voicey voice? Mm -hmm. um, like, did you experiment? Did you just get it? Like, how did you, yeah, what, just all of the <laughs> questions, all of it, tell me everything. <laughs> um, I have to say, it just... Oh, no. I just, I just started no. writing Elliot that way. I'm sorry. I never tried. She never, there was never any other iteration of Elliot. She just always was fourth wall breaking and footnotes. Um, the choose your own adventure, like the interactive parts, those came later. Um, um, but it was always bullets and lists and like, the fourth wall stuff, I just, when I, the second I started sitting down and writing the book and having it being narrated from Elliot's point of view, something felt weird about it. And maybe it's because I've worked my, almost my entire career in publishing, but like, and I think about books too much <laughs> day to day, but there was something where I was like, this is so intimate. Like Elliot is really telling, you know, I'm taking you on this very intimate journey of Elliot. There's no way that she doesn't, she can't address the person that she's sharing her life with. Like, it felt like it would be so weird if she wasn't consciously aware of who she was sharing this story with, you know what I mean? And I, it, there was just something about that and like knowing her in the back of my mind where I was just like, she, 
I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Like, this is the problem I have with writing in a third person um, point of view. Cause I'm always like, who's the narrator? I'm like, who is this? Who is this person? <laughs> how do they know all this? Like, I'm think too logistically of like, how do they know what's going on? Were they there? Are they witnessing it? Like I, that's why I struggle with third person because of this. <laughs> so my, my most favorite point of view now of late is like possibly one of the quirkiest, hardest ones to do, but it's like the book thief. So it's first person omniscient. Oh, yes. Right. Like that is what I'm (laughs) trying to do in a current. You should read Tiger Lily by Jody Lynn Anderson. It is a retelling of Peter Pan told from Tinkerbell's point of view, who's third person omnipotent. So she like can see everything, but she can't interact. Tiger Lily by Jody Lynn Anderson. Okay. it's done really, really well. (laughs) That's a hard perspective to write from, but that's that, you know what I mean? Like thinking of like that, that lovely bones as well. That's another one that kind of does that as well. Yeah. That is my favorite. Like it's so unusual and there aren't many books written like it. And I just, it is so powerful, I think. Mm. And yeah. And, and, you know, I don't know, I I'm quirky. I like fourth wall breaks and I love that. Sh- I love it when yeah. they do it in TV and yeah, movies, like Deadpool. Like Deadpool. Yes! <laughs> James. <laughs> oh, this is going to be awkward for the rest of the podcast. No, I can't talk. No. Um, yeah. Uh, me, me too. Love it. Love it all. <laughs> Deadpool is like some of my fave, like maybe. Yeah. The fourth wall breaking, that's just fucking fun. And footnotes are so fun because it's like, Footnotes are for two reasons. One, I could add in so many more jokes (laughs) by using footnotes. Oh, I have a whole document of footnotes that weren't used. Oh my God. So many good puns with like Mountain Doomy and like, oh, just like so many different so many I things really that were too racy you have like bundled this and put it as all. like a, a reader magnet so that people oh, can should. sign up you should like seriously <laughs> should. bundle that together and I put should. it up as a reader magnet for your mailing list because oh. i would eat that shit up but the other reason why like elliot probably feels very voicey um or you know unique to a lot of readers is because um i decided to make her ADHD. I mean, I don't know that I actually consciously decided. I think it's just that I'm ADHD and I tend to write in an ADHD way, which is a lot of paragraph breaks and things breaking up the wall of text. Um, And so once I realized that I was writing Elliot to be ADHD also, I fully embraced it. And then using footnotes is a physical, a literal way of depicting what it's like to be in Elliot's mind when she's talking. And then all of a sudden she has a stray thought that you have to jump down to the bottom of the page. And then you have to find your way back up to where you were before. That's exactly what it's like in this head. (laughs) It's so annoying. So a lot of like the negative comments um, about the book, I find so interesting. And I wonder if they're from um, neuronormal people who aren't ADHD and just find that like, they hate the footnotes and they find them so annoying. And I'm like, huh. Is it annoying because you just don't like being interrupted mid sentence? <laughs> yeah, but I, I, yeah, I, I, and I, yeah, you can really <laughs> see that it's written mm-hmm. like that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, my, my son may have ADHD, and yep. uh, he, it's 
very hard to keep up with him and like there is this kind of jumping around and stuff so I can yeah I, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to reread like maybe well I don't I'm gonna have to go back and read some of my favorite sections I think to feel that like because I read it and was reading the footnotes mm. for like the comedy and the humor but now I know that that mm-hmm. was the intention behind it I think I have to go back and like reread some of those sections um yeah <laughs> I can't believe that we are running out of time and I'm, I'm desperate to like ask all the questions, but um, I, I will skip to some of the uh, the patron questions. So uh, Audrey said, wanted to ask about humor and sarcasm and like sarcastic narration. And I guess my question is like how humor is often shied away from. People are often quite afraid of writing humor. Um, but I think the banter and like the jokes and everything is absolutely like the height of humor in your book. So what advice would you give to um, writers who maybe want to do sarcasm or they want to put jokes in, but are afraid? One, try to avoid just jokes. Um, Like just a straight up joke is always going to be hard because people's definition of comedy varies (laughs) wildly. So I tried to avoid, like there are a handful of puns in this book, but it's like, I just, I tried, I tried not to actually do any jokes. Um, But the structure of a joke, which can be written as banter essentially is like a one, two punch. So it's jab, jab, punch (laughs) basically, which means you're setting something up. You're setting something up to follow that and reinforce what you just said. And then the third thing you say is the thing that is wildly different from the first two, or is the cutting remark. That's the point that lands. So that's like, that's a very basic (laughs) structure of how to write a joke. Um, and it's pretty much used by almost every comedian. Some people do four, like punch, jab, 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 punch. Um, you kind of have to figure out the timing there. But I will say that um, what made it easier to write some of the more comedic scenes is about the situation in which they are in. It's not just the dialogue, like the dialogue helps, but like what causes the dialogue is what informs the comedy. So like the dating auction, like just a dating auction in general leads itself to a lot of comedy. Um, the, The sex montage, like, um, you know, you can break it up and have like short little vignettes, the montage where she goes to try out different clubs and things like that. Um, that sort of lends itself well to be like, okay, well, what would be the funniest club? And I had, I wrote a lot of different variations of clubs that she joined and I basically picked whichever one was the funniest and would be the most, you wouldn't even think that like, that's what comedy really is. It's just stuff that's like completely out of the blue and makes it's just so obscure and random, like randomness leads itself a lot to comedy. Um, and then the banter itself is like, you don't always have to give your best lines to the person you think is the fun, the character you think is the funniest. It's actually sometimes great to give the funniest lines to the people who aren't always the funny characters, because then that really pulls them out. And it's like, oh my God, like that line, like when Brad, who's this himbo or whatever. And then he starts talking about like, how good looking this guy is that Elliot's going on a date with. Like there was just something so funny. Cause like you would never expect somebody like Brad to say something like that. You think he's just this, this like super straight, like boring himbo guy, but no, he says something like a random and out of left field like that. But when you think about it totally within his character, so randomness out of left field stuff, the one, two punch, 
um, and um, setting your characters up in situations that easily lend themselves to like a comedy. Just think of your favorite, you know, comedy TV shows. Like there's so many great setups. Like that's what situational comedy is. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I was going to say uh, like it, it was a lot of situational stuff. And I think like the other thing it's that, well, I think that you did and that other people do is it's often landing the character with the last thing they want in yes. that situation. That was the other thing, um, like the wrong hole. <laughs> oh yeah. You can, Elliot never gets what she wants. No, you can't, she never. doesn't get, nothing works out for her and she doesn't get anything that she wants until like the very, very end. And so, um, yeah, never ever really give your character for sarcasm, at least never really give your characters anything that they actually want. <laughs> okay. I'm devastated, but I have to ask this question because we are coming to the end. Yes. This is the Rebel Author Podcast. So can you tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel? <laughs> oh, okay. <clears throat> One scene that sort of inspired Elliot's, um, you know, she goes on this sort of sexcapade uh, to figure out what she likes in bed. And it's because she has a class that she's taking and it's for an essay that she's writing. What inspired this essay was something that I actually did my freshman year. It was the second week of school. Um, all Emerson students are required to take a public speaking class, a speech class. And second week of school, he gives us an assignment to um, give a speech, any speech on any taboo topic that you want to talk about. Um, and, you know, a lot of people were talking about like apartheid and racism or, um, I don't know, like skull, like punk music and things like that. Um, I did a speech on S and M and I went and rented an entire leather getup with whips and chains and all like all of it hardcore hardcore stuff in the local sex shop and I, I got up in class and I started showing scenes from this movie secretary and I have um, seen that film <laughs> yeah and I believe I wish I still had that that speech somewhere but I think it started with something like um like bend over it was something about bending over and I like went up to the t- this is like so inappropriate. I should have never done this. But like, I went up to like my teacher and I like whipped him with a whip and I like, and I yelled at him to bend over. And that's how I started the speech. Um, So this is amazing. I originally was going to have Elliot do something like that, but I was like, nobody will believe me. Like this will feel so, (laughs) so I toned it down. Um, But yeah, so that was the first, that was the first, uh, that, that was a very memorable moment. I I made a name for myself at Emerson with that. (laughs) I think you have just cemented yourself as my hero. So, or heroine, I should say. So what a fucking rebel story. That is absolutely amazing. Um, what can listeners expect next from you? Oh, I am so sorry, listeners, but it's going to be a while until my next thing. I currently still work full time. Um, Fresh is the first thing I've ever written ever. (laughs) Like I've never even dabbled like for fun. I've never even written fan fiction. Um, so I don't even know how I was able to write fresh. It was all fever dream at this point. Um, 
I am working on a couple of new things, some irons in the fire, but I will say, you know what, this pandemic, I'm going to be honest, this pandemic has made me, has zapped my um, attention and I'm already ADHD, but like, it's been really hard for me to focus because I don't have my regular routines, you know, that I had established for decades. And um, I still haven't quite figured out what works for me when working from home. Um, And so I haven't really, I haven't finished writing anything yet. I've got like 20,000 words of an adult romance. Um, and then I've got this other thing that I'm probably going to be leaning more towards, which is a fantasy comedy. Um, everything I write though, will almost always assuredly end up being comedy and <laughs> cause that just tends to be my default writing style. So, um, until then you can follow me on Instagram where I post memes on my stories, <laughs> my favorite obscure memes. They're almost always like sapphic or something, you know, gay in some way. <laughs> Um, but I'm trying to write faster. Actually doing podcasts like this are helpful to remind me that, all right, I should be writing something new. <laughs> well, I, I will wait with beta breath because <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I will read anything that you write. So oh, you have you. one reader who will be waiting for your <laughs> next book. If that is not encouragement, no pressure. Oh, though, like, I will I say that the fantasy comedy is essentially just, what if I put Elliot in a fantasy setting? <laughs> I love it. I can't wait. I literally and she was part can't of wait. like a fantasy squad, you know, a team, like a traditional like fantasy team of like trying to go off and do missions and stuff. Like that's literally just um it's every time I write it, I'm just like, okay, what would I like? You, you you have to stop because I am not gonna be able to wait. So <laughs> um okay, yes, tell everyone where they can find out more about you, um, your books, anything else you want to add. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Margot Wood and Instagram Margot M Wood. I had to put the M in there because I screwed it up the first time around and I can't get my old account back. <laughs> my bad. Um, and I, my YouTube is active, but I do not, I should say it's inactive. All the videos and stuff are still up there. So if you are jonesing for more of me, um, but I don't post really to YouTube anymore because I ain't got time for that shit. Um, Again, I also do have a TikTok, but I have really scaled back from that because it was such a time suck. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, Twitter and Instagram are where I'm most active. Amazing. Thank you so, so, so much for your time today. It has been an absolute blast and a real honor. So yes, thank you for joining me. And of course, a giant thank you to all of the show's listeners and all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to Margot Word, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Next week, I'm going to be joined by Maisie Eddings, who has written A Brush With Love. And uh, that is kind of a play on words because the character is a dentist and also is neurodiverse. So we're going to have a great discussion all about uh, neurodiversity, um, anxiety, and sort of representing that in fiction. And also, she's a rather derb hand at uh, sexy scenes. So I ask her all about that as well. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.